from baseball's top personalities. The Hall of Famer, one of the great TV broadcasters, Bob Costas is here on A's Cast Live. To the A's legendary players. Five-time Major League Baseball home run champ, Mark McGuire is with us here. You never know what stories you're going to hear. We used to come out here to lunch and run with our shirts off. <laughs> you would say. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Recently, we had a couple ESPN employees and one of the great researchers stop by A's Cast Live. Jesse Rogers from ESPN does everything baseball and Chicago. Kylie McDaniel, formerly a front office guy in baseball, now works for ESPN. And no one better from MLB.com. You see her on MLB Network, the great Sarah Langs. But we'll start with Jesse Rogers in Chicago. Actually, he's in Arizona, but from Chicago. Jesse, Chris Townsend with the A's. How are you? I'm good. What's going on? I was up early this morning watching you on MLB Network. You did a fantastic job. Well, I was up early, too, after a few long nights covering this labor stuff. So hopefully I made some sense. Oh, no, no, you definitely did. And when you, when you do start talking about, okay, it's now done. The business of the deal is, you know, a lot of people are going to talk about it and hash it out. But for us people that truly care about what goes on inside the lines, it's now, man, this is a true, you talk about a 40-yard dash to to the start of the season. That's talking free agents. That's talking trades. You have executives haven't been able to talk to each other. You have agents technically haven't been able to talk to front office people for 99 days. I mean, this yep. is kind of a wild, wild west, and uh, and you talked about it earlier today on MLB Network. Yeah, and it, it's going to percolate a little bit and then really get going um, as, as players arrive and stuff. I expect by the end of the weekend, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a flurry. The faucet will open a little bit. But it doesn't mean everyone's going to sign by the time camp's officially open, you know, Sunday, Monday, whatever. Uh, because I think the star players are still going to shop around, take their time. If you're a star player, you might need spring training, but you're not going to um, take a lesser deal just to get in there early, right? So uh, I think that's where a, a calm agent is, is like Scott Boris or one of the other big agents is going to say, look, just let's, let's take our time on this. So if you get in there March 20th, that's okay. I mean, pitcher's not as, not as okay. We see Rodon sign today, and I think you're going to see the pitchers go first. But I, I, I think that, um, you know, some hitters may go early, but I think some hitters are going to, you know, take their time because there will be a squeeze. Some players that are not stars are going to be given, you know, basically take it or leave it offers. And if you leave it, you're going to move on to the next team. Where in the past, the next player, in the past, uh, a player might be able to shop around a little bit. But I, I don't think teams are going to wait around unless you're a star player. You know, when I, when I look at the CBT, and uh, to make it easy for everybody, it's it's essentially the luxury tax. And I look at that number, and we were laughing earlier here, as the Oakland A's, I mean, we take a nap during these discussions because we're never hitting yeah, that. Yeah. You know, the majority of baseball is never hitting that number. Um, we heard about certain teams who weren't thrilled about it. I'll ask you this. Do you think any team in baseball was was thrilled at the levels we're talking about now? Well, the answer is yes, because, look, there are some rich teams that like to spend, and they would rather spend on a player than a tax. It's a, it's a competitive balance issue for them. I mean, now that the CBT is at, what, 230? Yeah. First threat, that's an extra player. That's an extra $18 million player, whatever the number is. You know, you can add to your roster. I, I don't think the teams like the A's or the Pirates care that it goes up. I think the teams that like it, Going up, you don't mind it going up. Are the, are the Yankees, the Dodgers, those sort of teams? Then there's the teams in the middle that have a problem with it. Those are the ones that can derail a vote if it goes too high, meaning that, that CBT number. The St. Louis Cardinals are a great example. The team that tries to win every year, right? They don't rebuild. They don't do any of that stuff. But can they compete financially with the Yankees and the Dodgers? Probably not. So when that CBT goes up, they lose players to those rich teams, at least in theory they do. So they're the sort of team that would vote against it going up. Now, they also draw $3 million, get revenue sharing, so maybe they can spend like those big teams. But at least we could say definitively the Yankees and Dodgers probably make more money local revenue than the Cardinals, um, TV revenue, all that. So, you know, their, their, their narrative holds true. 
I mean, the, the higher the CBT, the, the tougher it is for them to compete with the big, big guys. And those are the sort of teams, the Brewers are another one, that would vote against the CBT. Well, when you think about the business of baseball and where we are as the A's, we're being rumored as one of the teams that's open for business, uh, uh, being able to move some players. But you know what? We just don't know now. And what I want to ask you is, 99 days is a long time to sit back. And, of course, you were talking to other executives before the shutdown. You're talking to other teams, looking at potential trades, looking at potential signings. And then you sit for 99 days, and then you're handed a new set of rules under this CBA. How much do you think that has changed certain teams, how they felt before the lockout, and how they feel now with the new rules? I think that um, this is probably why it's going to take a few days for, for, for everybody to get, you know, sort of settled with these new rules. Um, but I don't think it's going to change a lot. Uh, it, uh, the new CBA won't force teams to change their behavior too much. Now, the lockout could have. Um, you know, I guess you're not really losing revenue now that you're going to play 162. So remember we heard the story, you know, Jeter resigned because he thought they were going to do something the Marlins before the lockout, now post-lockout, that theory changed. Like, some strategies may have changed, but I don't think it's going to change too much. Um, but, like I said, those there, there are only a couple teams that went past the, the luxury tax. There's still about four or five that were right up against it. So those four or five might go right up against the new number. So I guess I should say that in some, for some teams, the, the, the strategies might change, and for some they won't. But I think that's why we're, we're, it's taken a couple days. It's just kind of it's going to take a couple days for teams to figure out exactly what they want to do. But, yeah, you're going to see a lot of teams spend up to the new numbers, so that is a change. You know, whenever you have these negotiations, everybody wants to talk about who wins, who loses, did both win, did both lose, however you view it. I look at a scenario, I think of it from a business standpoint. I think about what the owners are now going to be bringing in with Apple TV, with Peacock. There's all this new revenue coming in. So whatever they ended up giving the players, they needed to give the players a little more, but it, it allows them to do all this money coming in from new revenue sources, and you gave some players some extra money. It gives you some breathing room for five years. Now that you've had a little time to sit back, and, and how do you view how this deal went down between the owners and the players? I, I, can, I think I can sum it up pretty well without getting into the weeds too much. Um, it's my contention that, the players did get some sort of, the way I'll describe it, everyday victories. Like the money going into their pockets went up dramatically. Um, there's new revenue streams, pre arbitration pool, things like that. It, it did go up day, day in and day out kind of money. But the owners held tight on the sort of foundational part of this game economically. Salary arbitration after three years, free agency after six. Um, no real anti-tanking rules were that's my biggest thing. They did the lottery draft, but I don't think that uh, the draft lottery, I don't think the draft lottery is going to dissuade tanking. I really don't. In fact, I think the pirates don't mind if they pick fifth instead of first, because then they can pay the guy a little less. So <laughs> I, 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 foundationally, the, the, the behavior of teams can basically be the same. Though there's just more money into the pot for the players. So I guess it's win-win, lose-lose a little bit. Because look, if, if there's seven, eight teams taking every year, five, six, seven, then there's that many less teams bidding on free agents. And that has not changed with the new rules. So, uh, uh, But there are other ways for players to get paid that protects, I guess, in, uh, against tanking. If you're on a bad team and you win rookie of the year, you're going to get a big bonus. So um, it's win-win on some aspects, and then there's some losing aspects as well. When you, you look at whether you're going to be in or out, adding more teams to the playoffs, I'm hoping for September, I'm hoping before any type of you know trade deadline that the teams are going to look at that and more teams are going to be, I'm not going to say all in, but they're going to be in to try and make the playoffs. Do you think the additional playoff teams will do that for us? A little bit. I, I actually was an advocate for 14, and I'm, I'm a traditionalist, but I, I that's the old days are gone. You know, with the game has to evolve. I like the idea of less teams just selling everybody at, uh, on July 31st. And if more teams have a chance at the playoffs, there's a, chance, there's a way to avoid the tanking cycles. You know, 
have more teams available for the postseason on July 31st so they don't sell off the team. Um, so, yeah, I think 12 will help. Um, but, you know, I think 14 would have been better. That's kind of my opinion. How tough is it right now where we are? And games aren't going to start till March 17th, uh, 18th down at spring training. We won't have our first games until April 7th for the A's. We're going to open up in Philly on the 8th. But just how tough is it to figure out, like, who really are the true contenders right now with so many holes on these 26-man rosters? I think it's all on paper right now. Like, for example, I think the St. Louis Cardinals are the best team in the NL Central, uh, far and away. But that's on paper. I don't know what Adam Wayne late at 40 years old is going to look at. I don't know what Yadier Molina is going to look like without off-season training like they normally have, without talking to coaches. I'm just using those two as an example. So on paper, I think we can sort of identify, you know, you could say coming off of last year, the Astros are pretty good. The Yankees and Red Sox are pretty good. But who knows how injuries are going to play a part. I mean, they have no contact for 99 days. Training was different. Was it better? Was it worse? That's what the season will tell us. Um, injuries seem to be a, a big conversation part already. Um, and so that maybe just simply the healthiest team will be the best team. We'll see. Let's end on this. With the limited time managers are going to have with these guys to get them ready for the season, I think about us keeping Mark Kotze in the family and having him be the new manager to replace Bob Melvin has now even even look looks even more like a great idea because he already knows everybody, all the relationships. How key is it in this short time that you have somebody that knows the team versus bringing somebody from the outside who would have limited time to build those relationships? I, th- I think it is big, and it's not a cliche. Um, uh, Tony Lusa, for example, was managing the White Sox last year. This was his first year at 77 years old, and he had a cram to, to get to know people and to build the trust. I think it would have been a problem. So I think I think something like the, you know the Katsay move does benefit for sure. It kind of reminds me of 2020 COVID teams that kind of were ready to rock and roll and weren't sort of feeling their way through things with a new manager. I think we're better off. I think it's the same thing here. Now he's a new manager, but the relationships are there. So yeah, it's we didn't know it would be a benefit six months ago, five months ago, but it certainly I think will be for the teams that are familiar with their personnel. Before we let you go, you're down in Arizona. You guys are going to have a special event remembering all of our friend and what a wonderful man, Pedro Gomez. Yeah, there's a little charity event tonight, fundraiser, cocktail. Uh, we're funding a scholarship program in his honor. I think there's going to be a band. And then tomorrow, a uh, softball game. Kind of, I, I don't want to call it a celebrity softball game, but a softball game of Pedro's friends um, over near the uh, Cubs facility. So, yeah, that, it's kind of like a weekend thing. It just happens to be as they open spring training. I, I feel like Pedro had something to do with that. Well, guy, you guys have a great time in honoring a, a wonderful man and truly what he did yeah. in broadcasting and sports. And you know, he, he had a, he he had quite a great history up here in the Bay Area, and he has a lot of friends up here and people that will always love him. So you guys have fun with that honoring a, a very very special person. And it's great to have you back on the program. It's great to have baseball back, and we'll talk to you soon. You good. You got it. Take care. Thank you. Jesse Rogers from ESPN. Always good to catch up with Jesse. How about Kylie McDaniel? He gives you a ton of info from ESPN. Let's go to Kylie. Kylie, how are you? Great to have you back on the program. Doing great. Thanks for having me on. You know, we, as someone who deals not only with uh, Major League Baseball and you know a lot about the minor leagues, we are just talking about you know, so much with our fan base is talked. You know, we look at the organization and whether the organization doesn't wants to sign or not sign someone. And and I've tried to explain it doesn't always work that way. A lot goes on to the player and his agent too. And Matt Olson is a great example. Is you know, Matt Olson. We never really heard much about you know what does he want, how many years, what kind of price he's looking for, and when he got traded. He said all the right things. He was very vague leaving Mesa, Arizona before heading to Florida. And it was about going to the team that he grew up rooting for. 
but it was going to be tough to leave the A's, you know, saying all the right things, but really being generic. And in less than 24 hours, he signs an eight-year, $168 million deal, which we all know that takes some time and a lot of people have to sign off on that. So it just goes to show that we just can't just always look at the organizations. Wouldn't you say we got to look at what the players and, and the agents and what they want, because we never know the price tag until we see somebody's John Hancock on the piece of paper. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's, uh, you know, you'll have players represented by Scott Forrest, which Olsen is not, is not one of those guys. Um, but you'll see players represented by Scott Forrest, and we'll be like, oh, they're not signing extension. They're going to free agency. Like, they picked that agent because that's how they think about this, and it's, I'm going to maximize my money. This is, you know, about setting precedents, all that kind of thing. And that was, like, roughly, like, the Bryce Harper uh, type situation. Um, and then other players, it's like, oh, I'll sign an extension. Like, you know, you can offer to me whatever, and, like, I'll be open to it. Just make it fair. And then other guys are somewhere in the middle where it's like, maybe I'll go to free agency if I don't get a great offer. Maybe I'd like to play for this certain team. You know, there's a lot of different versions of that, um, that, that, that sort of attitude that players can have. And, you know, it would appear that Olsen realized, if I had to guess, he probably wasn't getting what he thought he was worth from Oakland, and he's from Atlanta, and it sounded like they were interested. They were about to make a decision on Freddie Freeman. And there was like a pretty clear path. We're like, oh, that could resolve itself. So let's see if we can make that happen. And I think it worked out like pretty well for him, all things considered, even if, you know, A's fans are not like super thrilled about it. Like this is probably something he dreamed about when he was a boy. You know, when I think about Freddie Freeman and where he was before the lockout, where he was during the lockout, and now where he is post-lockout, where it was a shrewd move by the Braves – Hey, we're going younger and cheaper with Matt Olson. Rizzo Rizzo resigns with the Yankees, so that probably takes them out. I never rule anybody out. Uh, The rumors, hot rumors were Dodgers. We'll see. Supposedly the Padres have gotten into it as they want to move Hosmer and Will Myers. But at any point from the end of the lockout to where we are now, has Freddie Freeman's camp overplayed their hand? I mean, that's certainly a popular narrative today, given that, you know, there's been a lot of different free agent pursuits where there's a lot of twists and turns and this team's out and then they're back in and you know, all that kind of thing. And I think, unfortunately, for the Freeman camp, when teams decided they were out, they just went and got a replacement that almost precluded them from coming back. So, like, in that way, that has played out poorly for them, whether it was due to their demands or just the teams wanted to take a cheaper option anyway. Like, I don't think the Yankees were ever going to, you know, give him $170 million or whatever would have made him sign immediately. Um, and I would also say Toronto was probably out because there was some rumor that they could sign Freddie and then move Wise Jr. over to third, but then trading for Matt Chapman kind of locks in those two corner spots. You then want to go spend again big on a guy after signing Galsman and Barrios and George Springer uh, and uh, Ryu. Like they've spent a lot of money sort of some, somewhat under the radar in free agency and in extensions recently. So like I think they're probably out after Chapman. And so then it kind of narrows things down to like there's been some reports that the Rays are interested, that Boston's interested. Both of them obviously are not looking to just wildly spend. Uh, and then the Dodgers like don't necessarily need them, but would like to have them. So you kind of wonder what their willingness is to spend wildly. Like, yeah, there's certainly enough pieces here to suggest that that may be what happened. But also all it takes is one, one, one team to sort of overpay and make it seem like this is all smart. But I will say that that sort of uh, that saying about like where things are, that was, I think, especially useful like 10 years ago when like Mike Illich could just call Scott Boris and pay for infield or whatever he felt like. And that doesn't really happen anymore because I think the GMs are getting enough power. The owners are smart enough to like, you know, prudent enough financially, whether you want to call that smart or not, to not be like undercutting their own employees. It doesn't happen that often. Maybe that's happening with the Mets a little bit where it's just sort of like everyone knows Steve Cohen will spend wildly. So maybe that raises the price on some guys they're bidding on. They didn't really get great discounts on any of their players. But that largely doesn't happen that much. And so we're seeing, I think, more uh, logical prices uh, at the top of the market. All right. I want you to put your a- expert prospect hat on and 10 different guys. You know I'm always wearing that. <laughs> All right. So 10 different guys have come to Oakland now for Chapman, Olsen, and Bassett. Who do you like? Who do you go, eh? And who do you think is overrated? Who do you like in this 10-player haul that the A's have gotten in three trades? I will say I had the same response that I think a lot of people did that I was texting after the Chapman deal. That, that price ended up being a little lower than I thought it would be. And it could be that like I'm a little lower than Oakland is on that package of uh, players from Toronto. Or it could be there just wasn't quite as much interest 
uh, from other teams as you would have expected. Because I think even a year ago, Chapman would have gotten a lot more in return than he did. Um, so that's the the one of the three where it's like, ah, oh, that seems a little bit below what I was expecting. Whereas the Bassett deal, I think, is about what I was expecting. And then the Olsen deal, I think, was maybe even a little more than I thought it would be, even though it's probably fair value. Just usually at the top of the trade market, teams are so hesitant to give up top prospects. You don't always necessarily get what you should. You get what teams are willing to pay uh, in prospects. And that is, you know, less and less year by year um, because teams just like don't like trading in players. But I would, I'm actually looking at my uh, my prospect rankings. I'm writing up right now. They should be going up in the next week on ESPN.com. I think it's like next Tuesday they'll be going up. So it's actually good that we waited this long. So now the Oakland list will be, you know, accurate unless, you know, trades happen that morning. Uh, I have Langoliers was 81st in my top 100. Christian Pache just missed it at 105. So obviously those two guys being the best of these 10, both come in the old deal. Kind of, kind of gives you an idea of, uh, of how that uh, went for Oakland. And then the next two guys are Hoglin and Ginn, who I both have the same uh, 45 future value uh, grade, which is roughly like 135 to 185 overall. So both where they could move into the top 100 with a good year. They're not that far off, especially Hoglin, who's coming off of Tommy John and may pitch this fall. So by this time next year, he could very well have made enough progress to be in the top 100. Those are the four headline guys coming out of these deals. And then I think the sort of sleeper to keep an eye on would be Ryan Cusick, who I know Oakland liked a lot in the first round of last year's draft out of Wake Forest. So the Braves took, uh, he was, you know, this is now the third player in the top five from that one Olsen deal. It gives you an idea of how good that package was. Uh, Cusick's issue, big guy, throws really hard up to over 100, but he had a big sort of looping curveball that he couldn't command that well. The Braves switched him over to a slider after he signed. He's throwing more strikes, and he's got really good swing and miss qualities in addition to the velocity on his fastball. So he's the kind of guy that could just slice like a hot knife through butter through the lower minor just because he can just throw 100 at the top of the zone and then, you know, kind of run into his first challenges around double A. So he might have very gaudy numbers this year as he's, you know, not challenged that much and then will run into a, you know, a little more of a challenge at the upper minors. Who do you think affects the big league roster first? I think Christian Pache, I mean, you could argue that if the Braves weren't like a playoff team last year, obviously they won the World Series, but if they weren't in the playoff race all year, especially if they were like a rebuilding team that wasn't contending, there's a compelling case he should have just played the entire year in the big leagues because he's one of those guys that's in that weird nether region where he is so physically talented, he's performed pretty well at AAA, but he hasn't performed in the big leagues, and so he like needs to face big league pitching to make progress. He can't really improve that much in AAA anymore. And sometimes we see those guys not work out. Like Lewis Brinson is a prominent example where he's like too physically talented to not succeed at AAA, but then hasn't been able to figure out the big league level. I don't think Pache is anywhere near that level of issues at the plate and also is a much better defender. So his floor is basically to be Kevin Pillar, like a defensive-oriented everyday center fielder. And I think he might be that right now. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of scenarios where he should just play the entire year in the big leagues, whereas Langoliers, you know, probably spends a little bit of time in AAA you know, obviously as a catcher, you don't want to bring him up and play him not that often. Uh, Hogland will need the whole year uh, to recover. Ginn will probably spend the entire year in the minors, maybe like a September call-up. Uh, and then a couple of the guys, I guess the other three players from the Toronto uh, deal with Chapman, uh, Logue, uh, Kevin Smith, and Kirby Snead are all pretty close and could reasonably come up, but I don't think they're like impact guys right away. So everybody had the A's really low when it came to ranking the farm system. I mean, anywhere from 30, 29, 28, right around in that range. With these new 10 guys coming into the organization, how much does this vault them up the list? So I've got them right now. I have a sort of an auto-updating list. So I guess that's very convenient for this question. Yeah. Uh, coming into this up. So before there were any trades, I had them 28, uh, which, which is obviously third from last. And, uh, the, I mean, the two teams below them were well below them, so it's sort of like their own tier, 29th and 30th. Uh, and then they're sort of in like a, I don't know, like a five-way tie in the 20s. They just happen to end up at 28th at the back of that group. Uh, right now I have them at 21st, uh, but they are now in, a, in like a very long, meaty middle where like one, I mean, one more trade. They'd probably have two more trades if I had to guess between uh, – uh, Manaya and Montas. Uh, but they're like one fringe top 100 prospect from being like 14th or 15th. And if they were able to get one of those level guys from both trades and get two of them, uh, then they might be like knocking on the door of the top 10, might even break into the top 10. So they're like at the point where they're technically 21st, but like they're not that far away from being 10th or so. And I think also in these sorts of situations where there's been whatever you want to call it a teardown or rebuild, reload, however you want to term it, uh, there's been a lot of instances where teams start in the 20s 
and then, you know, work their way into the middle uh, about like Oakland is now. And then all of a sudden you add a July 2 class, uh, you add a draft class, maybe add a couple guys at the deadline, maybe some guys improve throughout the year. And all of a sudden you end up like seventh or eighth and you go from 28th to eighth in like less than a season, essentially. So I think they're on a trajectory to do something like that, which again, if you're a lower payroll team that's reloading, you need to have top 10 level of talent and preferably closer to the big leagues to be able to like have that really impact the team sort of change your outlook, which is why they have to, you know, take, take such drastic action in terms of trading all these veterans to kind of make this work. Well, what's so interesting about really all professional sports is that father time's never going to lose with athletes. We're dealing with human beings. At some point, guys get older, guys change. And when you're making any type of run, you're going to have to use what you have in the minor leagues to help keep that run going. And then all of a sudden, once your players get old – and you can only sign so many free agents, and you have really no one in the minor league system, you kind of get in a rut. And Hal Steinbrenner of the Yankees recently brought up saying that, you know, in in the industry you should always be trying to win. But we see it could be the NBA, it could be hockey, NFL, Major League Baseball. If you had a we're winning every single year mentality, in the way that these sports are set up with their CBAs, since we've talked a lot about CBAs, um, is that really a possible thing to really do long term? Is to try and win every single year? I mean, this has been, I think, a very uh, interesting conversation to have, especially in the last ten years in baseball, where it went from almost every front office was, you know, guys that largely like played pro ball, maybe didn't go to college, or sort of old, old school scouts, and then obviously Moneyball comes along and you know throws a wrench into that, and then eventually we got to the point, especially when Jeff Lou now took over in Houston where it was like overwhelmingly not former ball players, uh, guys that went to Ivy League sc- uh, schools, guys that worked for like investment banks and consultancies and things like that. And I think we probably swung too far as an industry. I remember when I was starting out, I was interning with the Yankees and I was making these arguments like, hey, we should have like a dollar value next to every player so it's easier to compare a 15-year-old we're about to sign in the Dominican to a 28-year-old on our big league team because like currently we're not thinking about this correctly. And then there's like a vein of that that like is now decried around all of baseball because like you're putting a dollar value on a person. Like a person is not a widget that's worth an amount of money. But like it was so backward back then, like having a logical conversation about how good a player was, was all based in emotion. And so you had to bring in some monetary values to like have a reasonable conversation. It's now got to the point where it's like, oh, well, this player will make us better and give us a better chance to make the playoffs. And then the front office guy will be like, well, yeah, but if we keep him down for two weeks, we get him for an extra year and that's worth $18.2 million according to our formula. And it's like, okay, we're now actively trying to not win as much so that we can win like the, the service time Olympics. And that was, I think, like the sign when things had gone too far. Like instead of having a logical conversation and using numbers and maybe outweighing some of the emotion, it's now like, oh, there should be a little more emotion involved. <laughs> like we should think about what the fans want and like how good the team should be. And this, while all this is happening in baseball, obviously in other sports with the process of the Sixers, you've seen versions of it where I think some fans have been brainwashed to think like, oh, we're winning this imaginary thing that doesn't matter. Like a number one farm system is great. It actually doesn't matter. Like if the players are all bad – and you know you don't you don't figure out a way to make them make the good make the big league team good. It's totally useless. It's like a made up thing. Granted, it's like a big part of my life, and I write about it a lot. But it alone means nothing because it might not add up to anything. It usually does, and that's why we put value on it. But like that alone doesn't make that big of a deal. Like if the top five guys in the A system all become all stars, like they're obviously not the twenty first farm system. But like my guess right now is they're the twenty first strength farm system. Um, So I think this is important to have this conversation because I think so often, whether it's on Twitter or talk radio or, or, you know, people shouting at each other on my TV network, uh, people skip that sort of preamble part about how we got here and what this means and what actually is important and just come from one of those two points of view and just act like the other one doesn't exist or has no valid uh, arguments. And in reality, they both matter. And I think we're now sort of getting to a point where people can realize that they both matter and sort of consider both. All right. Take us back to your Yankee days, and it kind of reminds me of the scenes of Moneyball. When you're sitting at a table and you're having, you know, the discussion with everybody and you're bringing up ideas that people aren't used to, people aren't comfortable with, what was that like? (laughs) I was also the least paid and lowest ranked person in the room, so they generally (laughs) just ignored me. Which, to be fair, like, most of the people in that room have been working in baseball full-time for, like, 30 years, and most of them had played in at least the upper minors, if not the big leagues. 
And I was just like some pimply faced kid that was still in college, like, you know, tossing out some ideas. And like, whether the ideas were good or not was sort of irrelevant. Like I had no standing in that room and no reason for them to believe me. And in that room, so many people like me had walked in with bad ideas, and including me. Like I had also had some bad ideas then. Um, like I still have some of the guys that work with me then I'll see at games and they'll be like, remember when you were arguing that like we shouldn't have drafted, you know, Ian Kennedy that year and instead of should have taken and then, you know, named somebody David Huff, whoever it was that I thought was better than Ian Kennedy. And it's like, obviously Ian Kennedy's still playing now. And like, you know, David Huff like barely made the big leagues. And I was like, oh yeah, I had some really bad ideas back then. In addition to some good ideas. And that's, I mean, I worked for four teams and there's been versions of like, there's still arguments that I remember uh, where I was, it sounded like I came from the future to like explain something to someone and it turned out to be perfectly right. In the moment, I didn't know I was right. It was just like, well, this seems like something I should bring up. And then I was completely sure about something that ended up being wildly incorrect. Like, it's, you know, I'm sure everyone can sympathize with this and their, you know, whether it's their sports betting or their fantasy team or something they bring up at work. Like you have good ideas and bad ideas. You think back about them and some of them are embarrassing and some of them aren't. And it all just sort of makes sense and you just get a little better day by day. And that's also how like my online career has been. It's, you know, sometimes people point out that like when he hadn't played in low A yet, I was saying that Ronald Acuna and then two years later, Ozzy Albee like should be top prospect in baseball. People remember those. They don't remember that I like soured on Gary Sanchez right before he won rookie of the year because that's, I don't know, just not, doesn't seem like that uh, important of a data point because I was on him for five years before that. But like, you know, luckily people forget that I was kind of wrong about it for a few months there and then everyone forgot about it. And you know, that's, I bet if you had a GM on here talking about this stuff, they'd talk about some dumb stuff they did when they were just starting out. And then some really interesting things that they've, you know, done in recent years that everyone writes about. And they just, you know, nobody found out about the dumb stuff they, had, they did. You know, we're, when you look at where we are now with data, everybody has their version, but everybody has it, right? This isn't like Moneyball and the A's have found something and everybody is looking under every rock. Everybody's got a metric. Everybody's, they've got something that they use to evaluate players, but yet some teams are good. Some teams are bad. So where do you think we are with basically the science and the data and everything that goes in from the high-speed cameras and Rapsodos and Hawkeye to TrackMan to all the stuff we're looking at with Major League Baseball. Where are we now with all this since everybody's using it? Sure. This reminds me of a conversation from the uh, HBO show with Ricky Gervais, Extras, and like in, I don't know, like the third season, eventually somebody points out to him, because he's basically trying to become like a star actor. And somebody that is a star actor that is very respected comes up to him and says, you can either be good and famous or you can be respected. And almost no one gets to be both. Like you get to be one or the other. Like which one do you want to be? And he just sort of like sighs and he's like, I'd rather be famous. And so then he goes and does just like terrible shows that makes a bunch of money and everybody knows his name and wants him to do the, uh, the catchphrases and all that kind of stuff. And this reminds me of like how it works with baseball teams, which is if you're not the Rays, maybe the Dodgers, maybe a couple other teams, but it's like a maximum of five teams. In reality, it's probably more like two or three teams. If you're good enough to run the, one of the lowest payrolls in baseball and have perennially make the playoffs and perennially have one of the best farm systems in baseball like Tampa Bay does, uh, you have to pick one or the other. Do you want to win this year or do you want to kind of compete for the rest of time? Like you can either be really good for like a short window, like Kansas City is a great example. Like they spent more money than they probably could afford. They moved all their chips into the middle. They were good for like three years. They won a World Series and made another one. It worked out fantastically more than they could have expected. And then they were terrible right after. <laughs> and like that's kind of your choice. And like the Marlins, another good example. Like they like built a farm system. They got everybody up. They then bought a bunch of players they couldn't really afford. They won a World Series. They then got rid of all their players. And it's like a real roller coaster for fans. We're like, all right, you won a World Series and you had some good players. And like Jose Fernandez played here. And you know, you have a bunch of things you can hang your hat on, or you could just sort of be like, I don't know, like the Cincinnati Reds are, where it's like, you know, maybe they make the first round of the playoffs and they miss it for a few years and they tear it down and they kind of make the playoffs and they're just sort of, you know, mediocre going back and forth for a long time. Uh, that's kind of the choice you have, unless you're one of those rare fans where you get to be rooting for Alabama football or the Tampa Bay Rays or the Los Angeles Dodgers. Like, there's just a handful of teams, you know, the Patriots for a while. Like, there's examples where it can happen, but, like, that is not the standard. Like, you have to look at, like, what Baltimore is doing with a bunch of guys that used to work for the Astros, and they're like, what we did worked, but it was because we were intentionally terrible and spent no money, and then we got good enough that it mattered. And that's what they're doing in Baltimore again. And I think it might work, especially if they were in a different division, have a better chance of working. But, like, they think that's the only way they can succeed. And I can't tell them they're wrong 
because like that's probably the only way they're going to succeed. But I think the fans want to believe, like, hey, try to do the race, like try to replicate what they're doing and see if you're good enough. But this is like a, you know, it's it's a higher probability chance that you're good one year is by just being bad for a couple of years. Yeah, the Rays are really a great. Well, they're never going to be rich and famous, but they are going to be respected. But I do like that analogy where. Yeah, you can be the guy doing the cheesy commercials and the cheesy sitcom and make a bazillion dollars, but can you be respected? Okay, so what is it? So if everybody has the ability to have – everybody has the ability to be the smartest guy in the room, I guess is the way I want to put it. Everybody can have all the analytics, all the science. You can get into neuroscience and how people's brains work. You can have all of that in front of you. You have the best doctors, the best care – why do the Rays do it better than everybody else? Why do they use the information everybody else can have, but they do it better? So I grew up in Tampa, and they were, like, the first team I had contact with. Like, Hein Bloom was the first person to ever, like, sit down and talk to me when I was in college trying to, you know, get jobs with teams and stuff. And I've known a lot of their guys for a long time. And I've asked this question. There's been multiple times in the past where – you know, like people think the Yankees have figured out arm actions because every single guy in their whole farm system is 95 plus, even though they weren't throwing that hard when they drafted them. And people think they have a secret. And you go ask some of the guys, you know, I worked for the Yankees, grew up in Tampa where all their stuff is based. And you kind of get these guys alone and you're just sort of like, what am I missing here? Like, do you, like don't, you don't tell me what the secret is, but do you guys have a secret? And they'll be like, no, the secret is like our scouts and our player development coaches and our front office guys are all speaking the same language, looking at the same metrics. Everyone's pulling in the same direction and we're all trying. And it turns out only like four teams are actually doing that at once. So it makes it seem like we have some sort of like silver bullet of how to like make everyone throw a hundred. And when you talk to the Rays guys and like, I know them well enough to know, like if there's a secret, they'll be like, there's a secret. We're just not telling you. Like these guys have all been hired. Like they're, you know, either the number one or number two of like six different teams right now. Like they've spread out and all these teams are doing well, but they obviously don't have, they're not doing it the exact same way. And when you talk to them, they're just like, yeah, the secret is like, we're all generally nice people that try hard and try to treat people well and hire the right people, and we're not whole hog into numbers, we're not whole hog into scouting, we consider both, we try to do a job of balancing both of those, sometimes people internally think we listen too much to one or the other, but we think we do a pretty good job, you know, results speak for themselves, and if you look at, like, you know, even just, like, their draft history, it's like, they'll take high school pitchers, they'll take injured guys, they'll take college bats, they'll be, you know, boring, they'll be exciting, like, they kind of do everything, it doesn't seem like there's one thing they're beating everyone at, like, they have some giant secret, and I think that's, like, you know, kind of the secret in whatever industry. I don't think this is limited just to baseball teams. It's like when people seem to have a secret for something, unless it's like a heavily like tech dependent or software based company, or like, you know, they're making better and faster and better widgets at their factory. They probably didn't like figure out some scientific breakthrough. They're probably just doing like 3% better than everybody else at everything. And everybody's got, you know, good vibes and likes the place they work. Like that's probably what the answer is. And I think that's probably what the answer is here. And like a, a, a good company, even though you have the right formula or whatever your technology is, that you have to be able to adapt. And the rules change, people change, business changes. And whatever the rules are, the Rays figure out a way to make the rules work for them. And, you know, sometimes businesses get get left behind. And I guess you could say this in baseball, too, that organizations – get left behind because they're not very flexible in their thinking. Yeah, I would say if you could go to, and you saw a little bit of this with Billy Bean in like the wake of Moneyball, but if you could go to an executive and say, you can either have like, if you were to rank like all 30 GMs, you can be number one at like adaptability, like adjusting on the fly and figuring stuff out faster than other people can. Or I can tell you a secret nobody knows right now. Which one do you want? They would all choose adaptability because like, even if you know a secret, nobody else knows and nobody else figures it out, they can look at the kind of players you're signing and kind of figure out what it is or hire one of your people, or they can kind of triangulate what it is within a couple of years, you're going to lose that edge or lose enough of it that, you know, it won't be quite as important. Whereas the adaptability is just like, whenever something happens, you figure it out before everybody else. And maybe it only lasts for six months, but you're consistently getting those edges. That's the thing that matters. And I think I have the luxury of not being in a front office, at least not now. And so I'm not thinking about that stuff and just like, well, who do we sign? Like, where's the workout tomorrow? Like, who, you know, who's the decision on the trade? Like that, I don't think I had like very incisive thoughts when I was in that world. Cause you're like too lost in, inside the tree. You can't take a step back and look at the whole forest. And I think a lot of these teams that are very successful, they're able to step outside of the situation they're in. And instead of thinking about like, where am I flying tomorrow? Who am I going to see all the stuff that kind of bogs you down? They're able to take a step back and just be like, all right, what type of player should we be drafting? And what type of player are the people over or under rating? Like, what type of player are we better at evaluating than other people? 
let's put ourselves in a position to succeed and make sure nobody's getting overworked and everyone feels taken care of and has some autonomy and like all that stuff. That's just way more important than like having an idea nobody else has right now because that stuff's kind of fleeting in like the long view of like since Moneyball, that's like 25 years. It's like there's been 37 original ideas that no one had thought of or that you had an edge on that have evaporated since then. But like being adaptable would be like a huge factor that entire time. I could listen to you all day. You're fabulous. Well, I just had a second cup of coffee, so I think I'm just really firing it <laughs> on cylinders right now. Hey, you are the best. Well, well, so when is your organizational rankings coming out? So the org rankings went up like two weeks ago, and they've they've changed dramatically since then, especially for a couple of teams in yeah. Oakland. But my the individual like one through thirty for each team with the reports and all that stuff will be going up on the twenty second and twenty third, and I'll have the updated org rankings uh, like you know Oakland being twenty first or whatever they end up being. I'll have that on there. So you'll you'll get a, an updated org ranking along with all the team reports and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I don't know what day that is, but that's at some point next week. Love it. Let's talk soon. Yep. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Kylie is uh, Kylie is phenomenal, and she's our all-time favorite. She's phenomenal on Twitter. Read her on MLB.com. You see her on MLB Network. Sarah Lang stopped by A's Cast Live. Here she is. So during the lockout, weren't we told that Major League Baseball said you cannot talk to Sarah Langs? Like, like you can't talk to players and you can't talk to Sarah, right? Isn't that what we were told? Yeah, I mean, Sarah's up there. Is one of, she's pretty much a player, so it's hard to talk to her. They actually said to us we had a better chance to talk to Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, before we could talk to Sarah. That's how. So the lockout's over, and, and we're free to speak with you now. Is that correct? Hi. We've missed you. <laughs> I miss you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Like, I was happy the lockout was over, but I think you were probably way more happier than anybody that I know. Because without baseball, I don't know what you would do. You know, I read some books. I sat around, watched some basketball, watched some hockey, watched some football. But so glad we have baseball back now. So glad. What is the number one thing lockout ends and you go, I'm looking forward to this? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's so hard to pick one thing, but I'm just excited for this one Soto MVP campaign. I mean, it's been coming. It is going to happen. I really think it happens this year. And, you know, just seeing all that he can do. And how about seeing Shohei Otani again? I mean, I know that's your division. I know that's a sore point. But we are, so, I mean, just we, the baseball world, are so excited to get to see him again. Yeah, you missed, you, 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 you mentioned Juan Soto. And I, I, I just, to turn down the money he turned down at that age, wow. I mean, not many people who will ever walk the planet can really just basically say 300 and something. I, do you remember what the – do we know the actual fit 350, 3-something that he turned down? I think we just knew it was in that range. I don't know that we knew exactly, and you're right. I mean, there are very few people on the planet and who will ever be on the planet who will even get a chance to turn something like that down. But, you know, the reaction was almost universal. Of, of course he did. Of course he can do better. I mean, Mike Trout has the biggest contract, as he should. But I think Soto is the obvious player and waiting there to break that record and, you know, just break that record overall for guaranteed money and all of these things that baseball contracts do. Why are you so bullish, other than we know he's got great talent, and that this kid, bar, you know, knock on wood, barring any injury or any uh, craziness, will probably be a baseball Hall of Famer. But why do you yeah. think this is the year I got to put my money on him to be MVP? You know, I, I know the Nationals are probably not going to be very good. And obviously that could work against him. But we just saw a year where the top three and MVP in both leagues were on teams that did not make the playoffs. So hopefully that opens the floodgates just a little bit. And Bryce Harper had a great year last year, but I thought there was a great argument for Soto even last year. If you look at projections entering this year, he is projected to be the best player in baseball 
no matter which projection system you're looking at on Fangraphs, we have Zips, we have Steamer, we have depth charts. They are all saying buy wins above replacement. He's going to be the absolute best. Drive in 120 runs, 35 homers, which is a lot for him considering his plate discipline, considering how infrequently he swings. And, you know, a signing that happened last night that I actually think almost helped his chances is adding Nelson Cruz. I mean, that is some lineup proje- uh, protection for him in a way that he really, you know, he had a little bit with Kyle Schwarber before he got traded last year, but not nearly on the same level. But if a pitcher is going to have to make the decision, do I face Soto or do I face Nelly Cruz when he's on one of those Nelly Cruz tears? I think that Soto just got a decent number of more hittable pitches, which we know he's just absolutely going to destroy. Yeah, Nelson Cruz is like one of those guys that defies all this age talk. Like, I mean, I don't care how old he is. He just needs to give you four at-bats a game, and they're going to be four legit ABs. And he goes up to the dish with bad intentions. You know all the years that we've seen him with all the different teams he's played on in our division. He's a scary man, and I don't know why he chose the Nationals over everybody else because now that everybody's got a DH, you think that people would be coming out of the woodwork for him, especially in a one-year deal, but – Man, he I mean, he's got to make Soto that much better. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I was also a little surprised to see him picking the National too. I don't think most people have really competing in the NL East this year. So we'll see, but I saw his quote today out of camp was the team convinced him they were trying to win and you know, regardless of where that is, they they did enough to get him and he's such a fun player. I mean, If you're a Nationals fan, you already have a great reason to go to the ballpark, no matter how the team is on the whole with Juan Soto. And I really think having Nelson Cruz there, I mean, those home runs are titanic. And they're going to look great in that cavernous ballpark in Nationals Park. And he's going to get to play in the only active ballpark he's never played in, which is City Field, because he's been in the AL almost his entire career. He was on the Brewers for a, a second in 2005 but city field wasn't open yet well when i look about when i look at the news that's gone down the last couple days it's like we've had a crazy off season in just a 48 hour period what were your thoughts i thought uh shrewd moves by both the braves and the athletics and it's not going to be popular with any with either fan base uh what did you think about the deal between the bravos and the a's today yeah, I mean, you know, it was really interesting to see the Braves basically make their statement that Freeman won't be back. I mean, I feel like in the traditional offseason, the order is often reversed where the star player signs somewhere else and then the team, the incumbent team makes their move. But it's March 14th and the opening day is in, what, three weeks at this point. And you need to be able to get your roster set. As you said, I mean, it's a trade that, you know, I I know is not making any fan base happy, but I hope, and you guys can certainly speak to this, that the Braves fans make their peace with it because, you know, the idea of Freddie Freeman not being in a Braves uniform on opening day, especially the reigning World Series champions, is just hard to fathom. But Matt Olson is such a great player. And if you're going to not have Freddie Freeman, Having Matt Olson, I mean, there's an argument you're set up even better of a long haul if you're able to extend him at some point before he hits free agency. So such a great player, really worked on his plate discipline last year. I'm really excited to see him even more in the NL East. And, you know, it's a good, I think it's an interesting package of prospects and young players going back to the A's, I mean, uh, to the A's. Christian Pache is really interesting. I know he had the tweet. He was very upset. I always feel very badly for players who express things like that, but I think he will enjoy being on the team. And I think he's sort of the name that jumps out in that trade. But, you know, we've certainly seen some very interesting approaches on the trade market, obviously from the A's in recent days and from the Cincinnati Reds with Sonny Gray, former, uh, former friend for you guys. Uh, being traded over to the Twins, and then uh, more trades today with uh, Suarez and Winker. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I it makes me kind of think of the Albert Pujols deal to where, you know, Albert won a World Series franchise player, ends up moving on. A little different, though, with Freddie Freeman because it was the Braves really taking on somebody else and cutting the cord with him. And I also view this from a business standpoint in a way, you kind of hurt his leverage because Albert Pujols was always able to say to the Angels, hey, if you want me to leave this great scenario that I have here in St. Louis, you got to offer me more money and more years. Mm-hmm. Freddie Freeman could have used that with the Braves, but that now that's gone. If you're talking about negotiations for the Dodgers or the Yankees or whatever the mystery team could be, now that the Braves pick up Matt Olson, they cut ties, and that leverage isn't there anymore for Freddie Freeman. He'll still get paid, but I don't know how that affects his negotiations. It's definitely important to wonder about. I mean, it does feel like there's a musical chairs going on here. And I do think there are more than two teams remaining for the two remaining first basemen left, you know, in uh, Freddie Freeman and Anthony Rizzo, because the Yankees absolutely should be involved in some way. I know Luke Floyd is there, but they would be much better to have one of these players. The Dodgers obviously involved and you know, there's been talk about the Blue Jays and, I don't know if that would involve moving Vladdy back to third or one of them DHing or something like that, but it does seem like there are at least three notable and you know willing to spend teams out there. So there still could be an odd man out, but there's no question that being unable to say, well, the Braves would take me with this deal, you know, not having that option in the negotiating room is a whole different ballgame for Freddie. Now, obviously, Yankees make a move. There's going to be a lot of attention. And now this trade between the A's and the Braves kind of knocked it off the map. But Kiner Falefa and also our our old really good friend, we love Josh Donaldson, J.D., both these guys come to New York. Both these guys uh, can be known to be a little prickly. They bring some spirit. There's no question. They bring toughness. They bring that kind of it factor. And a lot of talk about the Yankees taking on all the money for Josh Donaldson. But I love this move for New York. I'm a little biased because of my relationship with J.D., but I love this move for the Yankees. What do you think? I think it's fun for them to have a sort of outspoken player like that. You know, a guy who's going to be fiery. I mean, the Yankees have not had a player like that in a while. And they have such a reputation as a franchise for being so buttoned up and Of course, that's great, and professionalism is very underrated, I think, at times in sports. But, you know, I think he's the type of player who's going to bring a lot of mirth and excitement to the team, which is a really good thing, and he's still a pretty good player. You know, he isn't quite the MVP caliber he was a few years ago, but he'll help them for sure. And I like the kind of Falefa move. I mean, he appears to be the obvious, uh, you know, stopgap or uh, bridge between the current times and Anthony Volpe, who is their big shortstop prospect. So if anything, I think that the trade was almost a vote of confidence in that prospect saying, you may be our starting shortstop on opening day 2023 or by the all-star break that year. And it's great to see the organization have that kind of confidence in a young player. I mean, the reviews on him are rave and, you can go read on any prospect website. Everyone is very all in on him. And of course, we've seen uh, some other young, exciting uh, shortstops in the past for the Yankees. I'm thinking of Jeter, you know, but even Glaber Torres initially before things went a little bit south there. So I think it's a good move. I think it's the type of move where people sort of didn't know what to do initially because Gary Sanchez's time in New York was just. I mean, he hits these incredible home runs, but he didn't hit much else. His defense was so maligned. And it was just sort of this moment where I think his moment with the fan base had sort of passed. So it's maybe not all that surprising they moved on from him. And Gio Urshela was a great Yankee. And I think they got the utmost out of him. I mean, he probably played to his best defensive ability he'd ever shown at the major league level at third base and you know yesterday morning Aaron Boone was saying right now he's our shortstop and that wasn't going to be their best option 
he didn't say that. Second part, I'm just pointing that out based on the metrics. So they get a better shortstop in Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, and they look toward the future, which is good to see. Is New York going to survive without the Sanchino? <laughs> you know, he is such a fun player to watch hit home runs. I know that he strikes out a lot. I understand <laughs> it all. But the excitement around him when he first came up, when he almost set the record for the fewest games played in a year when you won Rookie of the Year, uh, current, that belongs to William McCovey, but I believe that if Gary had won it that year when he came up in July or whatever it was, that he would have set that record. The excitement was just so much fun. The Kraken, I mean, just all of the emojis on Twitter and everything. And it's always disappointing to see something like that end. But I hope that he's able to rediscover that power, you know, in Minnesota, maybe DH a bit more and not have to worry about catching it. Just focus on the power, which he is so good at. It's just there's some other things to work on. You know, the DH was always set up, you know, to have guys that could still hit, but they can't field anymore. They don't run as well. You know, really good players and a lot of future Hall of Famers. You know, you talk about Reggie Jackson, Dave Winfield, George Brett, Paul Malder, these type guys. And to now think the DH is going to be with every single team. How do you think this position, since everybody's going to have it now, is going to evolve? It's interesting. I, I do think there will be some changes. I wonder if if we'll see some teams sort of approach it, not just as having one guy, but really use it as a way to sort of, um, in a modern way, manage playing time. You know, we see American League teams often give a guy a day, but not a full day by having him DH, you know, a third baseman, a first baseman, and what have you. So I wonder if there may be teams that almost take that approach over the course of the season. A way to sort of work with a platoon and kind of keep like a reverse platoon, a defense platoon, um, and kind of keep a guy in the mix every day, even if he's not going to play defense every day. But, you know, I also think the overall stats of DHs are probably going to change just based on the fact that there are 30 now. So it's not going to be Nelson Cruz for every team. There are going to be teams where the backup second baseman is DHing some days because that's the depth they have. So, overall and may become a little bit less of an offensively charged position but you know I'm excited at the fact that it could you know help extend some careers I mean you mentioned Albert Pools before and he hasn't signed anywhere yet and there haven't been all that many rumors about him since the lockout ended but I do think that he has a chance to extend his career now in a way that he didn't necessarily on October 31st just because instead of there being 15 spots for him, there's 30. And if a guy like that is willing to take a small deal, which he might, I mean, he was with the Dodgers for the league minimum. You know, if he's willing to do something like that to just try to get to 700 home runs, there's going to be a team that says, yeah, we want that happening in our uniform. So, you know, it kind of helps with the sentimental side too. Maybe we'll get to see some of these power hitters for a little bit longer than we would have otherwise. How'd you feel about the expanded postseason? And would you have rather seen it go to seven teams in each league? You know, I'm excited for it. I, I just like the idea of having a lot of fan bases really engaged down the stretch. And, uh, you know, I just think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think there's going to be a lot of excitement with those short series. We saw it in 2020, but of course that, excuse me, that year wasn't exactly mature design because it was a shortened season. And so we had some teams below 500 and there were some short series that went even shorter than we might've hoped. They think it'll be better this year with 162 and really getting to see who these teams are. I do think that the 14 was going to be a lot. I, I think 12 sort of hits that sweet spot. I mean, you know, I'm all for more teams. I'm all for more teams being relevant longer. But I think 12 is going to be a really good, you know, ends up being a good compromise. It's going to get us some really good October baseball and some really good September baseball down the stretch.
You know, the shift has been a very controversial thing. And whether you like it, you don't like it, you want to look at the numbers, I I get it. But in the end, the old eye test just wasn't great for the game. If If you just look at the paying customer, the paying customer didn't like it. What do you think about coming up here where we just say shift no more? So my stance with this is always that, you know, the shift has been part of the game since Ted Williams and probably before that. The original shift was the Ted Williams shift. And I do think that it kind of gets the point of, you know, are we talking about changing game rules? Are we affecting strategy? And to me, the shift is just another strategy. I do acknowledge that it has blown up lately. I mean, if you look at the percentage of shifts even two or three years ago, it is significantly up, you know, 2021 compared to 2019, 18, 17, and so on. Maybe there's a way to modify it, but I think ultimately, you know, the game, I think the game has the capacity to change itself. I mean, as teams place more emphasis on different kinds of hitting, I think that that also has the ability to change it. But I don't deny for a second what you're saying, that people are not going to see a ground ball that used to be a base hit, not be a base hit. And people are not sitting at home and uh, expecting the same thing either. And I completely understand that frustration. So I'm not trying to be the new age stats person defending it. And for me, it just doesn't even come from the place of stats. It just comes from the idea of what is strategy versus something that deserves the rule. But, I mean, I'm probably wrong, and it's probably going to change. And, you know, you can play this back for me at any point, and I will happily sit there and eat crow, and I do not mind. (laughs) We would never do that to you. (laughs) I know, but I'm just saying, you know, I understand that I have a bit of the stat person's approach, but I just think, I mean, I don't, I also don't want to be watching a game where the umpire calls time because the guy's foot is a little bit too far over, you know? I mean, I haven't been to a minor league game where they've been uh, policing this. And I know that's starting even more this year. So maybe I'll try to get to a game to actually see how it works. But you know, those are the type of things where I sort of cringe. It's like, oh, wait, stop. You're in the wrong place. That's a balk. You know, like, I don't know if we want to get there either. Well, I, I'm seeing, Cody, What, what what's being reported that they are thinking about going back to extra innings with the, starting with a runner on second? Yeah, I just saw that earlier. I think Jason Stark of The Athletic had it that they're the league and yeah. the, pub, the Players Association are uh, talking about bringing it back. I, but, I mean, I'm good with, with or without it. I know Chris is a big fan of it. Okay, so can, can, can I give you my why I love it? Please. See, I don't get to turn the game off, and I don't get to go home. I got to work after the game. So it might yeah. be great for a lot of people to be like, I don't care, and it's just the way baseball is supposed to be. But you know what? When I'm there at 1, 1 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm still on the air – it's miserable. And I know for a fact when people like the traditionalists, I look at them and go, man, you just don't get business. The television ratings are gone. The radio, the radio ratings are gone. The majority of everybody in the ballpark's gone. So when a game goes 16 innings, who's enjoying it anyway? And it just screws up your pitching staff for a week. I see no benefit to it. I, you know what? This is what I'm going to say. When we first found out about it, well, when it first got implemented in the minors, I was very excited to see how it would work. I remember going to a double A game and the game ending in the bottom of the ninth and me being so upset because I wanted us to get to 10 so I could see this in action. And when it first started the major league level, I had a little bit of that feeling of, all right, what is this? What's going on? Is this, does this really feel like Major League Baseball to us? But I got used to it. And I have to say that I, like you, I'm working until long after that final out. And there is a practicality there. And to everyone who says we didn't get long games, I do return you to 
what was it, a 15-inning game between the Dodgers and Padres last year, even with it. I mean, there was something crazy. So I am not as against it as, uh, you know, it might be expected. Let's put it that way. You know, right now, with so much uncertainty and players out there and trades that could be made, and it's, you know, we're, we're going to have like an off season that's going to, instead of being a full off season, it's going to be like uh, a couple weeks and in, in to remake your club. And it, it's very strange, but it, it's actually a lot of fun to watch. Right now, if you had to say, you know what, I'm really interested in this team. Who would that team be and why? Well, I, you know, I, there are a million answers. Well, there's 30 answers to this. But my answer is actually a team that just did something, and I promise I would have said them three hours ago also. I'm really interested in the Mariners. I am. I mean, we know Jerry DePoto was going to do something, and he just did. He got Eugenio Suarez taking on a contract that, that he had that the Reds, I guess, were done with. And Jesse Winker is a really good player. And again, I'm sorry I'm piling on and saying positive things about teams in your division. Oh. I sincerely apologize for that. But, you know, they have the potential to be really interesting, especially with the expanded playoffs. They came so close last year. And I haven't, I mean, they and the Blue Jays, I think, would have been in if if we had that set up. Um I think, or at least one of them. But regardless, they were so close. They're really young and up and coming. And they have Robbie Ray now. And, you know, I love J.P. Crawford. I'm excited to see what Kyle Lewis does now that he's hopefully back and healthy after some injury issues last year. So, you know, I feel like they still need a few more moves. Uh, but they have the money. I mean, they could sign Chris Bryan. I'm not sure that's been talked about, but they could do that. Michael Conforto seemed interesting there, but I think Winker kind of uh, exhausts that. But they're an interesting team to watch for sure. All righty. We're looking forward to a uh, terrific 22 MLB season. Maybe a little rough for the A's. We're just going to be honest. But uh, we're looking forward to having you. We're looking forward to having you on through the years. You're 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 literally the best follow on Twitter. Uh, we love reading you, and we can't wait to talk to you throughout the season. Thank you so much. So good to talk with you, Sarah Langs from MLB.com. We want to thank Jesse Rogers, Kylie McDaniel, and Sarah Langs for joining us on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.